Good morning, church. Praise the Lord for another opportunity to gather in the house of God and to sing, to worship, to be instructed here this morning from his word. Let's bow our heads, our hearts, and pray. Father, we are before you. You have gathered us here this morning, and we just approach the throne of grace with humility with gratitude, with great need. And we pray that you would meet us. We pray that you would supply our needs this morning. And perhaps we come here thinking of our needs and um, itemizing them. We know exactly what it is that we're looking for. But you, our Lord, of heaven and earth, you know our hearts and you know exactly what we need. And perhaps we're looking for something that's outside of your will. And so we pray that you would serve us according to your knowledge of our hearts. And so we pray, may we cling to Christ this morning as we look at his life, as we look at his passion, as we look at his pursuits and priorities in life. And so that we too, as we're called by the gospel writers and all the New Testament writers to look to Christ and to emulate him in our walk. We thank you for the power of the Spirit in us. Conform us to Christ's image, we pray and ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. If you are there, or once you get there, you will probably read a paragraph heading that goes along the lines of the temptation of Jesus. Maybe you have something else there, but something similar. Normally, a preacher may start out his sermon on this topic with a rhetorical question. Church, have you ever been tempted? Well, um, this morning, I want to modify this question a bit. And rather ask it this way, have you ever stopped being tempted? It's assumed that we're all tempted. We all have our weaknesses. We all have the sin. Now, trials and temptations are part of our lives because of the state of our being and the reality of the presence of sin. We just cannot escape it because we're sinful on the inside And the world is marred with sin. And as the writer says, it lies in the power of the evil one. We are constantly being tempted and tried. So this episode here in Matthew chapter 4 in Christ's life gives us great hope in our predicament. Primarily because the son of God, Jesus Christ single-handedly overcome the enemy, the devil. And also because there's a lot to learn from how he did it so that we too can prevail in our trials. So if you're temptable, and that is all of us in this room, this passage is for you, and I'm encouraged to to study this passage with you. I want to just jump right into verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 11. They'll make a few observations And then we'll look at our text. 
So Matthew chapter four, verse one, Matthew writes, then Jesus was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, he then became hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you, you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, on the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you. If you fall down and worship me, then Jesus said to him, Go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. Now, before we look at our central points here in this text, I just want to make a few observations. And, and first of all, look with me at verse 1, chapter 4, verse 1. That Jesus' testing was God-ordained. Jesus' testing was God-ordained. Look what, how, how Matthew phrases it. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit, by the Spirit. So God is in full control of the situation. He leads Jesus to a place where he will be tried, where he will be tested. The word here used for temptation or tempted is a, is a neutral word for test. Whether this testing is good or bad depends on the intent of one testing. Okay, so God is testing his son. The devil is tempting him to abandon God's mission. So Jesus was led up. It is God-ordained testing. But notice also that although it's God-ordained, it is Satan inflicted. It is Satan inflicted. Look at this. He was led up by the spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, a, a different instrument. Satan, tempter. You will recall in James chapter one, verse 13 says, James writes and he says, listen, don't ever say that you're being tempted by God because God does not tempt anyone. He cannot be tempted himself nor does he tempt anyone. It's interesting if you look at the parallel passage in, math, rather in Mark chapter 1. In Mark chapter 1 here, verse 13 says this, And he, Jesus, was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. So it's very important for us to, to consider the context. Satan doesn't show up at the end of 40 days. Just as God leads him into wilderness, Satan sees it as an opportunity to strike. And he continues to tempt, continues to test the Messiah. 
And what Matthew records here in, in chapter four for us is devil's last ditch effort to throw him off his course. He's already tried many times, probably proposed numerous scenarios for Jesus. And here we are told of this last trial, so to speak, a three round fight where Satan tries to inflict pain, but God is in full control. God here, notice he is testing his son. Will my son, will this beloved son hold fast to my plan that was set in motion from eternity past? But the enemy at the same time uses this opportunity to inflict harm, to tempt Jesus, to exalt himself and to disobey God and pursue rather an an easy out, an easy route for him. So number one is that it's God ordained. Number two, that it's Satan inflicted. And number three, real quick, that these temptations are very unique to Jesus, yet the nature is very universal. Unique to Jesus. Jesus does here in Matthew chapter four, what Adam failed to do, what the nation of Israel fails to do, to pass their tests both in the garden and pass their test in the wilderness. It was unique in that the son had to do what no one else before him had done, although they had numerous opportunities. And he did it, listen, in the most of severe and most difficult circumstances. I will read you what James Montgomery Boyce writes. And he says, Adam and Eve were in paradise. Jesus was in the vast, desolate wilderness of Judah. Adam and Eve were physically content and satisfied. They were free to eat from any of the trees of the garden, save the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jesus was hungry, having fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Adam and Eve were together. They had each other for company and mutual support. Jesus was alone. Yet Adam and Eve rapidly succumbed to Satan's vials carrying the entire human race into sin, misery, destruction, and both physical and spiritual death, while Jesus stood firm as the Savior who was to bring life and salvation to the race. So they're very unique to Jesus. Will he stay the course? Will he trust God? But they're also universal because church, we are all tempted in similar ways. We are all tempted to act fleshly instead of relying on God's word and the guidance of the spirit to take us and lead us through our specific trials. We are tempted to presume on God at times, to manipulate God with our decision-making instead of humbly staying the course and be faithful. We are tempted as Jesus was here to take shortcuts in Christian life, to get the crown without the cross. And so this morning, I want us to see Jesus's priorities in life, Jesus's priorities in life, and just call myself first and foremost, and call you church to likewise prioritize. And and, and here's the theme. Jesus overcame temptation because he had one aim in life. And that aim was to please the father. That's it. One aim to please the father. Therefore, 
Jesus, with that goal and with that aim in mind, he prioritized obedience over instant gratification. He prioritized humility over presumption. And he prioritized faithfulness over ease. And so I want us to look at each of these temptations in order and see what it is that we can learn and how we can exalt our Christ for overcoming and setting the course for us. So number one, we are called here like Jesus to prioritize obedience over instant gratification. Now at first glance, this first test seems to address the issue of food because over and over the author here, he says, and, and he fasted and, and he became hungry. And then the devil comes in and he says, voila, here are stones, Jesus, you're hungry. There's no bread, but I know you can make bread. So make bread and eat. And so it seems like it's the issue here at stake is food. But the issue is not food. The issue is life. The real issue is life. You remember the story of Jacob and Esau in Genesis chapter 24. Remember the story where one day Esau comes from the field and his stomach is growling and, and he all of a sudden gets a whiff of Jacob's stew. And he runs over to his brother and he says, listen, I am dying. I'm dying. Give me some of that red stuff. Give me some of that stew. And Jacob being shrewd as he was, he's not just going to give something for free. He says, sure, you have a need. I have something that I need from you. Let's make an exchange. Sell me your birthright. Sell me your right to rule, right? Your right to be the number one in the family. Sell it to me. And Esau's thinking, listen, I'm about to die. What good is this birthright? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be dead soon. What good will this birthright bring me? And so how did uh, Esau here justify the sale of his birthright? Not because the stew was delicious, but because, as Moses records, he was, quote unquote, about to die. It was a matter of life. It wasn't a matter of food for Esau. Now, the same thing here is at play in Matthew chapter four. Jesus is in the wilderness. He's hungry. He's famished. From the human standpoint, if he lasts for a few more days, he will inevitably die. And Satan's appeal in this moment of real need is for Christ to instantly satisfy himself. To get what he requires. Why? Notice he says, because you're the son of God. Because you can. He says, if you're the son of God, in verse 3, he comes in and he says, if you're the son of God. Now, just moments ago, you just look up to the end of chapter 3. And, and look what the father does. The father just announced his ultimate delight in the son. And he says, if there's anyone that, that I love, it's, it's this son of mine, and I am well pleased in him, and I'm play, pleased in his submission, and I am pleased in his mission, just announce his delight. Jesus knows who he is. What about the tempter? 
What about the tempter? Does the devil know who he is? I, I'm sure the devil is very much aware of Christ's identity. And this statement here, if you are the son of God, is not a statement of doubt. In fact, it's a statement of certainty. And if, as we will continue to study through the gospel of Matthew, you will see that the demons who are running around, they identify, readily identify Jesus. You're the son of God. And so if they know, surely their head knows. He's not trying to make Jesus doubt who he is either. Rather, he's suggesting, as D.A. Carson points out, that the sonship of the living God surely means Jesus has the power and right to satisfy his own needs. You can. Therefore, you should. You're the son of God and you're hungry. As the son of God, you have the power that you can and should actually exercise. Turn these stones into bread. Sit down, eat, and be filled. And notice, live. It's a matter of life. But here's what it's, what's at stake. To listen to this advice, church, to listen to the tempter's advice would be to give up on the Father's agenda and the speed, Spirit's leading because it was the Spirit who led him and continues to lead him. Here's the ultimate question for the son, will the son prioritize obedience and submission to the father? Or will he choose instant gratification and forfeit his rights as the son? In other words, what's at stake here is this, in this unique temptation is will the second Adam, as, as Paul refers to him, succumb to this same satanic attack as the first Adam did? Will he overcome or will he be overcome? Notice Jesus' response, but he answered and said, it is written. It is written. You know, in his battle against Satan and in his battle against any sinner on earth, you, I mean, we're instructed by the gospel writer to pick up cues here, both here and throughout Matthew with Pharisees. He always resorts to scripture. Jesus always resorts to scripture. Now we know from Luke's account, like Luke chapter two, for instance, that as a young man, Jesus had been increasing in wisdom more certainly by saturating himself in the word of God as the spirit of God illumined him to understand. We're tempted at times to think that Jesus being God, Jesus is the word of God, so he knows scripture in and out. We are told in scripture that Jesus increased as a man, as a human being who took on flesh. He actually grew and increased in the knowledge of his own word, which is amazing. And so for the last 30 years, he's been saturated in the Old Testament. That's why he can go at any point in any conversation with any confrontation and says, have you written? Have you not read? Wasn't it written back then? Because he grew in wisdom. And so immediately after this te uh, tempter's proposal, Jesus offers a scriptural rebuke and, and he quotes Deuteronomy 8. And, and you can't help but think during this moment in wilderness, Jesus is probably thinking about the book of Deuteronomy because every single one of these quotes are taken from Deuteronomy 6 and 8. 
It's, it's in that place. It's in that passage. As he is in the wilderness, he's probably thinking of, of Israel and everything that they were supposed to do and all the promises that they received from God to be obedient and to be blessed as a result of their submission and obedience to God. And they constantly failed. And here Jesus finds himself in the wilderness and is meditating on those passages in his attempt to be faithful to his father. Pursuing the will, being directed by the Spirit. And now Deuteronomy 8, once you go there with me, Deuteronomy 8, and I want to read just just first few verses here. Moses here in this section of the Bible is speaking to Israel concerning the lessons they should have learned during their 40-year journey in wilderness. They're right there, right about to enter in, and and he tells them these things in verse 1 of chapter 8. All the commandments that I'm commanding you today, you shall be careful to do. That you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swore to give to your forefathers. You shall remember all the way which the Lord your God had led you in the wilderness these 40 years, that he might humble you, testing you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. He humbled you. And look at this. And he led you be hungry and fed you manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Here it is. That he might make you understand that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by everything that proceeds out of the mouth of the Lord. Boom. Few observations from this passage. Number one, God had miraculously provided for his people in the desert. And he gave them manna every day. And he gave them water from the rock. You know, as far as we can tell from the Old Testament, no one died in the wilderness because of lack of drink or lack of food. Nobody. That's number one. Number two, God revealed himself to the people in in the wilderness by giving them the law, okay? That's what the first five books are, the law, which which Israel was required to obey and by which they were required to live. If you receive this by faith, you will live. Finally, God often kept them hungry. That's what verse three emphasizes. I kept you hungry. Why, God, did you keep us hungry? He says, I kept you hungry in order to test whether you or not you believe my word, whether or not you will walk by faith, waiting on me to supply every single one of your needs. Now, when you go back to Matthew 4, the argument here that Jesus is making is this, bread is important, but obedience to God is supreme. Bread is important, But obedience to God is supreme. Food satisfies physical life, but God's revelation, he says, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God sustains the spiritual life. Remember, it was the spirit himself, verse 1, who led Jesus into the wilderness. And as such, it was the father's will for him to be there to experience this hunger and the subsequent weakness, creating bread out of rocks on the one hand meant instant gratification and instant satisfaction. But on the other hand, it also meant total disregard to the father's will 
and submission not to his leading, but to Satan's leading. The second Adam, in effect, would be no different than the first Adam. For Christ, the spiritual triumphs the physical. Saving his physical life meant losing the spiritual battle. Satan was offering Christ to save himself, so to speak. Don't struggle anymore. You can do it. You're the son of God. You have the power. The son, however, is fully assured of his father's care for him. That the father will provide in his own timing, in his own way. And listen, I mean, this is amazing. The father is training the God-man, his son, to trust him in the wilderness. To supply the son's every need, just as Deuteronomy 8 says. We just read, Mike read to us at the beginning, Hebrews 5.8. He says, writers, writes, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. That was right here. Learning as a man, relying on the spirit to trust the father that he knows and that he cares and that he will provide in his time. Jesus denied himself bread, but retained his righteousness. As I mentioned at the top of the sermon, that the nature of Jesus's temptation is universal. Every single day we're tempted this way. Are we going to obey God's word and rely on the spirit to get through whatever difficulty, or are we going to look for an immediate exit? What are we prioritizing in life? Are we prioritizing obedience to every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God, or are we prioritizing instant gratification? Christians, in our walk to honor Jesus, do we, like Jesus, prefer the spiritual over the physical? As one writer says, there's more to life than the visible and edible, tangible and collectible, bankable and investable. There's a whole other side that the Lord is trying to teach us. The Lord is trying to point out to us. And it's interesting, you know, thinking about self-preservation. We often think like whenever we hit a wall, whatever we encounter some kind of difficulty, you know, it's, um, it's almost seems like the end for us. And, and self-preservation is probably the strongest of all human instinct. And it kicks the, in the hardest in times of crisis and in extreme pressure. For the most part, when self is threatened, when self is threatened, we are most willing to set aside God's command. When my comfort is threatened, I am most tempted to set aside God's command, God's word. However, we know that the rest of the New Testament tells us to what? We as Christians, we ought to die to self. We ought to crucify the flesh and submit to the will of God. Brothers and sisters, are we struggling to see how loving God can bring us to a place where we feel hungry, when we feel desperately in need, and so we're tempted to cut corners, we're tempted to cheat, we're tempted to get what we need right now instead of 
trusting the Lord that he knows that he brought us to this place instead of being obedient to him. Sometimes we act above our pay grade. We're not God. We don't know all the ins and outs of everything, but he knows. And if our life is submitted to him, he knows how to not only lead us into it, but lead us through it and out of it, as we will see here in verse 11. So considering round one here, round one obviously goes to Jesus. And if first temptation appealed to Jesus's physical need, then the second temptation appeals to Jesus's pride. For Jesus to act in pride, to sinfully presume upon his special status. Here's the second lesson. Prioritize humility over presumption. Prioritize humility over presumption. Then the devil took him into the holy city and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple. You know, the first temptation here was about life and faith. The enemy wanted the son to doubt God's goodness and the spirit's leading. Satan wanted Jesus to act independently of the father. But Christ knows that true life ultimately comes from submitting and trusting God's word. In other words, that's what we're called to do, to walk by faith and not walk by sight. So now knowing that Jesus is committed to his father after this first round and, and entrusted his whole life to him, Satan wants to twist, check this out, he wants to twist Christ's faith, trust in God by tempting him to put his father to the test. Get this, all for the sake of faith. You say you believe in Jesus? Good. Why don't you do something about it? You're saying you're such a, such a faithful believer. You trust God? Okay, well, let me take you to Jerusalem. So he takes him to Jerusalem and he stands him on one of the wings of the temple. The exact location where this pinnacle was, it hasn't been identified. We don't need to speculate. We're not going to waste any time thinking about that. Uh, I don't know how Jesus ended up there, but I know that he did. And I believe he was there standing, as Matthew writes, on the pinnacle of the temple. Otherwise, why would Satan ask him to do what he did to jump off? So it's not an illusion. I don't think it's a vision. He was there. Now, still undeterred, the tempter once again introduces this next temptation with the same word. If you are the son of man, you're the son of man, right? Then you deserve special treatment. You're son of God. God delights in you. You deserve special treatment. You're unique, man. You're, you're the most important, in fact. You're a man of faith and you respect the word of God. And check this out. You know, in combat sport, a seasoned fighter would, would often use first or second round to identify the strategy of the opponent. And then once, you know, a shrewd rider, uh, a fighter, he would figure out his opponent and try to adopt the same kind of technique of his opponent. And in the next round, implement it to throw him off his game. Look what, look what Satan does. He's been around for a while. He's cunning. He, he's deceptive. And so he borrows from Christ's playbook, so to speak. And he starts quoting verses. It's amazing. It's amazing. He, he quotes verses verbatim from Psalm 91. And he says, throw yourself off, Jesus. 
Do it. You're special. You're unique. Do it. What? I'll give you proof text here. It says this. And then he reads, God says, I will command his angels concerning you and on their hands, they will bear you up so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. It's there. It's for you. Do it, please. Put your faith in that. If you're a faithful man, if you trust God. Now, Psalm 91 We're not going to go there, but Psalm 91, the entire psalm promises divine protection to anyone who would trust God. Surely Jesus is a good candidate for that. If anybody trusted the Father, it was Jesus, right? Why did Jesus hesitate then? Look at his response. He goes again to scripture. He knows that the Father is testing him like he tested Israel centuries earlier and therefore still meditating on Deuteronomy. He quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 16. On the other hand, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. What was Jesus saying with this quote? What he was saying is this, listen, devil, listen, Satan, you are trying to make me live dangerously. You're trying to make me presume on God's grace and on his goodness. You are trying to make me test my father's faithfulness. In other words, in Psalm 91, the author assures believers of divine protection from those who are trying to destroy him. Like if there is someone who is pursuing you, who will destroy you, who will attack you, God says, I will protect you. And even if you're going to fall off, I will command my angels and they will scoop you up so that you do not get hurt. God's protection is, is given to those who trust and love and obey him. A fact that Satan completely glosses over here. Jesus will not presume on God's goodness. And on his promises, Jesus is a humble servant who is devoted to God's mission, trusting God's sovereign care. One commentator says this, we must not test God's faithfulness to his word by manufacturing situations in which we try to force him to act a certain way. We dare not deliberately put our lives in danger as some kind of fleece. Aren't we tempted so often to put our trust to the test and to make this dangerous, quote unquote, leap of faith because we believe in God's promises, because we know the scripture, because we know the Old and New Testament. And and in our pride, we often tell ourselves how fortunate we are and we presume on God. Sometimes we're thinking we're acting in faith, but what we really are doing is we are testing the Lord. And you know, Satan knows how to appeal to our spiritual side in order to entice us into sin, to live recklessly, to live carelessly. In our personal life, we dare not presume on God's grace. As I was studying this, I remember a while back, some 10 years, maybe. No, it was more than that. Anyways, it was before I got married. I used to work a graveyard shift for UPS and got that job because they were providing great benefits. Um, And so that's the only reason why I went there for a time being. 
I went there during the nine-month span that I worked there. I, I slept about four hours or so, four to five hours uh, at night, which is uh, definitely not enough to sustain a healthy living, and then with an occasional nap. And I remember that as I, as I did school during the day, did work at night, and try to find this time to sleep, I remember waking up every, every night to, to drive to UPS, and I was praying for the Lord to sustain me and get me to this place, well aware that I had no business getting behind the wheel to drive because I would be endangering not only myself, but would be endangering all the other drivers on the road. I knew I was testing the Lord. And after I learned a number of very hard lessons, I finally decided to quit and praise the Lord for that. You know, pride gets the best of us. We buy stuff we can't afford, trusting God to provide. We make foolish promises, knowing that we have absolutely no means to fulfill them. And then we cry out to God in desperation. I like what MacArthur says, God expects us to take risks, any risk necessary in order to obey his will. When we risk our prestige, our money, our lives, our families, or anything else to fulfill the Lord's calling, we can rest confidently in his divine provisions for all that we need. If we accept the truth that only he knows what our true needs are. But when we take risks simply to fulfill our own ambitions or to put God to the test. He gives no promises on which we can rest. And so church, let us humbly trust our Lord and not manufacture situations in which we force God's hand. Now, having failed again, the tempter changes his strategy. He concedes the fact that Jesus wants to be an obedient, humble servant, trusting the care of his father and then this third round, he appeals to Christ's rule as kingship and kingship rather. What would Christ, here's the question, what would Christ be willing to do to set up a kingdom on earth right now? Right now. And notice this third lesson, prioritize faithfulness over ease. Prioritize faithfulness over ease. Again, the devil took him on a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. He says, um, you want to serve God, son? That's great. It's kind of like, reminds you of Herod a little bit in chapter two. I want to go and worship him too. Tell me how to do it. The enemy comes in. You want, to, you want to serve God? That's great. You're the king, right? I know you're the king. Look, you can have everything right now. You can have everything right now. I'll give you all the kingdoms. I'll give you all the splendor. You can set up the kingdom on earth. Look at all the injustice. Look at everything that's going on. Look at your own people suffering here under the oppression of Romans. Don't you want to deliver them? Now, look at all the hungry folks. Don't you want to feed everyone? Look at all the wars. 
Look at everything that's going on. Don't you want to bring universal worldwide peace right now? All you have to do is just do what I ask. Fall down and worship me. You know, the name of the game here is easy crown. Easy crown, but at what cost? Submission to the enemy. Worship. That's what it costs. It costs worship. You want an easy way out? Stop being faithful to your father. You want to be instantly satisfied? Stop trusting the Lord and obeying the word. You can get your way. In fact, Jesus, look where your faithfulness to the father brought you. You're in the wilderness. And for 40 days, he does not seem to care for you. Look where it brought you, your faithfulness to your father, near death. Worship me. I will give you what you need. You know, it was similar temptation to Eve and Adam. Eve, God is trying to hide something from you. You shouldn't trust him. He knows something you don't know. You want to be like God? Eat. Here, eat the fruit. Now, the question that comes up is, could the devil deliver on his promise? All these things he says, I will give you. Well, do you own it all? Well, from some standpoint, yes. Yes, he can. He is called the prince of the world. The prince of this world in John 16, 11. And 1 John 5, 19 says that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. So in one sense, he could deliver on his promises. But in another sense, God is sovereign. God is sovereign. And he sent his son to reclaim all of that for himself. The father promised that Jesus will be king. And we see this clearly in Psalm 2. Douglas Sean O'Donnell, he says, the father promised that Jesus will be king. And we see this, psalm, this clearly in Psalm 2, where he says, I will make the nations your heritage. As well as at the end of Matthew, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But only, check this out, if he follows the road to Calvary, the tempter tempts him to take a shortcut to glory by bath, bypassing Gethsemane and Golgotha. The father said, you're going to reign. You're, you're, you are a king already. And he's offering him a shortcut to glory. And Jesus' response is classic. Get out. Go, Satan. Enough of you. And once again, in his defense, quotes from Deuteronomy 6, 13. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. What's the central thought here? The central thought is God alone deserves worship. I prioritize. My only aim is to honor my father. Remember how we started? This is how he ends. This is my only goal. The father to please him. To worship him. But notice also here, you shall worship God and serve him. You shall serve him. Whomever you worship, 
him you will serve. And you cannot separate those two. Whatever you worship, you will serve. And Jesus implies by that, that I am serving him here now, where he has me in the desert. And I worship that same one, my father. Jesus knew he's the king and he would inherit the kingdom, but only in God's time. He knew of all the trials and temptations ahead of him. He also knew that without suffering, there would be no crown. Without prioritizing faithfulness to his father, there would be no forgiveness of sins. He didn't come here to enjoy easy living. He came here to suffer. He came here to serve and to save the lost. He came here, as he says, to accomplish the will of the father that he set in motion from eternity past. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, he says, I take on the body to do your will, oh my God. Now we have all been in pressure situations and great difficulties, no doubt, where we are tempted to throw in this proverbial towel. What allows us to overcome these temptations? You know, it's very difficult to do in the trial, but we have to condition our minds to ask ourselves, who am I serving? Who am I worshiping? If God, then do you believe like the son did that he will rescue you from this temptation and he will deliver you through it? Or do you trust, do you trust his wisdom that he put you into this trial for a reason? Do you sense his care in supplying all of your needs? You know, I can't help but remember a verse, one of my favorites in in 2 Timothy chapter 4, where Paul, at the end of his ministry, he just kind of recounts everything that took place. And in verse uh, 17, he writes, and he says, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. He goes back and he says, you know, everyone abandoned me, everyone left. Nobody gives anything about ministry except for maybe one or two individuals. But he says, the Lord strengthened me and he stood with me. Paul worshiped Jesus. He served Jesus. And he remains faithful to him until the end. There's no easy way. You know, there's a good old saying, no pain, no gain. It's exactly what it is here. You trust the Lord, the Lord will supply your need. And friends, Jesus knows just how much each of us needs because he's been there. That's why we read the passage in first or in Hebrews chapter four and five. He is a high priest who knows. He's a high priest who's been there. He's the high priest who learned obedience and he can come alongside you and and take you through this trial relying on the power of the spirit. And so in conclusion, as we look at verse 11 as well, I just want us to summarize everything that we've looked at here with a couple of points here. Number one, church, when, when tempted, recall scripture. When tempted, recall scripture. When you're tempted to be selfish, 
Remember Philippians 2.3. Do not do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. When you're tempted to walk in pride, remember Mark 4.10.45. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. When you're tempted not to forgive, remember Ephesians 4.32 and be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving one another just as God also forgave you in Christ. When you're tempted to look at or listen to something that you shouldn't, remember Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. When you're tempted to think that God had abandoned you or no longer loves you, remember Romans 8, 38, 39, for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor death nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And when you're tempted to worry or to be anxious, remember Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. Recall scripture, church. Like Jesus, let us learn obedience by saturating our minds in the word of God. But here's another thing. When, when, when you're tempted, remember Jesus. Go back to Matthew 4. Jesus is our sinless substitute. And if you want to write something down, Romans chapter 5, read from verses 12 through 17 as Paul looks at what Jesus did and what he has accomplished as opposed to what Adam failed to do. And he says, just as sin entered through this one man who failed, the righteousness reigned because of this one man who did not fail whose priorities in life were straight, who desired to please God above all else and who succeeded because he had a goal in mind. As Hebrews chapter 12 says, he, he had this focus, the joy that was said before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame. And because of that, he has sat down at the right hand of the father on high. Remember Jesus, he's our sinless Substitute. Remember that he freed us from slavery to sin. Because of what he did, we can have ultimate assurance of victory. And when we fail, and we will fail, and we have failed in our tests of faith that, becomes, that become temptations, we can confess our sins. And we can be reminded that our forgiveness in Christ is sure. It's something that we can rest in because of Matthew 4 and the rest of the New Testament. Remember Jesus because he left us an example to rely on the Spirit. Jesus not only relied on the Word, he relied on the Spirit who guided and enabled him to prevail over Satan and his temptations. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16, it's an interesting verse. Paul says this, I say to you, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. This is... This is an amazing verse because it tells us this, that if you choose every single day, if you have the ability to rely and walk by the spirit every single moment of your life, you will not sin. 
It's amazing. If we choose to delay gratification and to trust God by walking in the spirit, we will succeed, obviously. The reality is that we wake up every single morning and we choose not to do it. And that's why we have a high priest who made us perfect because of his sacrifice. Finally, when tempted, resist the enemy. Resist the enemy. Look at verse 11. Then the devil left him and behold, angels came and began to minister to him. What an amazing verse. Listen, church, uh, temptations are tough, but they're temporary. Remember this always. Temptations are tough, but they're temporary. The devil left him. This is God's grace. James tells us in chapter four, verse seven, resist the devil and what happens? He will flee from you. That's an assurance. That's God's promise to us. Remind yourself that God allows the enemy to test you for your good. Because through such tests, our faith is refined. But these tests are temporary. They're often, yes. Back to back to back, absolutely. But they're temporary. And God gives grace to endure and to pass our test. And after each test, our faith gets stronger and stronger and stronger because that's what first Peter one tells us. And listen, God rewards your faith. God rewards your faithfulness. Listen, what Jesus lacked here, God provided. Jesus was served. The angels, the same ones whom Satan tried to use in order to seduce Jesus, they came. And they served Jesus. They gave him what he needed. Wow. But I want you to remember one final thing. Remember your mission. When you're tempted, remember your mission. You know, Jesus' focus in the wilderness and throughout his ministry wasn't on trying not to sin. His focus wasn't on just trying to be a good person. His focus was on worshiping his father and accomplishing his mission. And this is our purpose also, church. The church is not called to produce good and polite people. Jesus' purpose and our purpose as a church is to be a blessing and to advance the kingdom of heaven. Our mission is just like Christ. It is to save the lost, to make disciples who will make disciples, to bring God glory. And after Jesus' time in the wilderness, he began his ministry, as we will see next time, and we must do the same. Your mission, once you become a Christian, is not just to live a better, a moral life. It is to begin and to advance the same mission that you've become part of, to advance the kingdom of heaven. As you become more and more aware of Christ's work and therefore become more equipped to do what he called you to do. What a reminder, church. Prioritize obedience, humility, faithfulness, relying on the spirit, and on our Lord who passed the test. Father, we thank you. I pray that you would sear these truths in our hearts and our minds so that we may be faithful to your calling. 
as Christians. Oh, help us not to look for instant gratification, but to delay it and to trust that you, when you show up and when you bless us, this is the ultimate satisfaction. We thank you for Jesus who ran before us and who accomplished the race that we're part of now. We praise you for that. In his holy name we pray, amen.